Hello, and welcome along to a special literary episode of the Downhill Second Half podcast. It's book club time. Crack yourself open a lovely bottle of something and get ready to enjoy. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Take Robinson on. Most people would say I was mad. Joining me, Ian DL, as always, is a man who isn't much of a reader of prose, but reads data from a computer screen with pace only matched by that of Anthony McNamee tearing down the underhill flank during his brief loan spell in late 2003. It's our podcast producer, James Harrison. Thank you, Ian. Great to be on Book Club. And alongside him, a man who, despite being the wordsmith of his generation, in his view anyway, when it comes to his own words, is about as prolific when it comes to reading actual books as Charlie Stimpson was in front of gold during his Barnet career. It's Mr. Craig Clayton. Yeah, I'll be honest, today caught me out a bit because I had been waiting for the audio book, but uh, we'll have to make <laughs> do with the paper version, I suppose. <laughs> and joining us today, a guest with a difference, the Bard of Barnet, in the written sense of the word. A now five times published author, but don't let that cloak of respectability fool you. A man with so many brilliant stories related to this silly little football club that he's gone and written some of them down in his excellent book, Barnet Affair. Welcome to the podcast, Dan Whiting. Gents, may I say, what a pleasure it is to, uh, to break my downhill second half virginity. It's, uh, it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful to be on here. But I do apologise for, if you can hear fireworks going on in the background here, and uh, I don't know if we're recording this during Diwali or if, we're actually, uh, if I've actually moved to Helmand province, but uh, <laughs> I'm not interruption in the background. <laughs> it's good to know some people are still having some fun during this lockdown anyway, Dan. On the positive side. <laughs> well, Dan, look, to get things cracking, um, let's jump straight into the book. When, when we, we've all, I think, had a read through, um, but we all had sort of different takeaways, I suppose. One of the ref- reflections I had, one of the first things I, I, that struck me, actually, was that it feels a lot like a record of what happened. Like, you wanted to get your stories, or the stories, some of them aren't yours, I guess, but the story down, as best as possible, almost like a memoir, actually. Um, what, what was was there something in that for you? Was there something about getting a, a record of the last, you know, thirty odd years down before it's forgotten with this new era of Barnet? Or did you have a, a different purpose when you sat down to write it? Yeah, I, th- I think definitely. I, I wanted some of the stories recorded. I think uh, you know there there are some sort of decent stories there, and I, I wanted these down. And as you say, I think. I think the club's sort of moving into a new sort of generation and and the old school is sort of slowly being forgotten about, shall we say. And uh, I think it it was important that that era in the, uh, you know, in the club was actually recorded. I mean, I don't sort of want to come across as pretentious and come across as, you know, some sort of Samuel Pepys type character. But, (laughs) you know, it it was it was definitely, you know, hugely important. And those those sort of uh, those years got documented. Did you find it almost kind of a, a bit of an emotional process? I know when I was talking to Craig before we came on air, we talked about that a lot of it sounds very past tense and things that have gone, and a lot of it is stuff that's not there anymore and whatever else. Um, and I know that we've all kind of uh, ignited a few old feelings perhaps from doing this podcast over lockdown. 
Um, but, you know, what, what kind of emotions did it stir, if any, while you were in the process of writing the book? Um, it, it's quite sad in a way, really, because, I mean, the book starts off with some sort of amusing stories and actually gets quite serious towards the end. And actually, you know, it's only my personal view that, you know, the move to the hive is, is not for, for, you know, it's not for me. And um, I, I think that it's to the detriment of Barnet Football Club. And uh, I actually get a bit more serious towards the end of the book, whereas, you know, the first bit of the book is more of a, uh, you know, sort of about the jokes, the japes and the laughs that happen over the years. It's funny, isn't it? It, is, it does feel, the whole talking about the football club now does seem to be a far more serious thing, doesn't it? I mean, when we, when us three got back together, to, when, we, or when we started doing this at the beginning of lockdown, as much as anything, it was about trying to bring out maybe some of the more the fun side of the, the football club again. And, and I suppose it's not a surprise that a lot of the people we first spoke to are people that haven't really been associated with the club now for 15, 20 years. And that's where the, the fun seems to be. I don't know. James, I don't know. James, what did, you, what did you think about it, James, when we first started up again? Did it, did it evoke some of those those memories of when you first started going? 100%, yeah. We, well, we started doing, you know, our first episode, if we indulge ourselves a little bit, was about Underhill memories. And, you know, even though we only spent about, you know, an hour or so talking about it, you know, our first memories of Underhill, you know, did stir a lot of memories, a lot of good good memories, especially from when we were younger. Um, but we're talking about things that are now 15, 20 years ago, certainly for, certainly for us and obviously for you, Dan, uh, a little bit, a little bit um, further beyond that, it's uh, it's very much in the past tense now, isn't it? Yeah, I think there, there were two sort of things that really stood out. I think, uh, you know, talking about the 05 side in We're On Our Way chapter, and there was a real sort of bond right from the players to the fans to the even Tony Cleanthus at the time, you know, was this lovable local lad who grew his hair that season. And there was like a, a sort of community feel right through the club. The other thing was a little bit further behind that, sort of maybe back in the 80s, where you used to get supporters who would paint the main stand during the summer or paint the crush barriers or, you know, do work around the club. And that sort of sense of community is completely gone. It's just, uh, you know, it's just business now, isn't it? It's completely a business. Yeah. And we, we, when we spoke to a few of the players, you know, we've, had, we've been lucky enough to talk to a lot of people on the podcast. And quite a few of them have talked about the fact that, it was almost part of the job to, to walk through the Durham suite at the end of a game and talk to the fans and, you know, get a little bit of a pat on the back. And it just doesn't feel like that that is prevalent anymore. And it doesn't feel like that rapport between players and supporters is a thing. Uh, I, I, might, be, I might be wrong because, because I'm not, no. probably not probably not qualified enough to say it, because given that we don't go, um, go along as much anymore. It's, it's true, though, James, but I think there's... The thing is... There were always gimmicks, right? But the gimmicks these days feel very much more deliberate and you can sort of see where they're coming from. I think when you look at someone like Martin Allen, Martin Allen is a, a gimmick machine. All those kind of walking players through the, through, the, uh, through the bar and all those kind of things that Darren Curry talked to us about were very much, um, were, were maybe put on a bit, but it felt, it felt real at the time. Whereas I guess um, maybe some of, some of that's lost from, to be even, it wasn't just the, the move from the ground. I think even maybe towards the end of, un, the, you know, the time at Underhill, when, when the end was looming and Edgar Davids came in and things like that, it felt more, felt more like a bit show, maybe showboating or, or something like that than it did the, the real thing that existed before, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think the other thing to take on board as well is the turnover of staff makes it impossible 
to have any sort of affiliation with the players or a manager or even the staff off the pitch. I mean, you know, we don't know who does the social media. They're sort of, you know, uh, who knows? I mean, back in the Underhill days, you knew Kevin Mullen. You knew who that was. You knew Janet Matthewson. You knew these people. And it, help, it helps you actually have an affiliation with the club, whereas, you know, now I think it's it's work experience. Kids he's got there, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, James, I think you were once one of those work experience kids, weren't you? <laughs> I quite, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, I was uh, definitely one of the work experience boys, but, uh, you know, hopefully I brought something. It's hard to be something that's been better since Sunday then. Quality yeah. of work experience. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Anyway, back to the, back to the, back to the book then. Um, so, Dan, obviously you started going to Barnet in 1983, which for the record, is, is quite some time before any of the three of us were, were born. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's back then, right. back then, well, it's, it's true, it's, just a, it's a fact. Um, but back then, football, non-league football, was, was a very different thing. Clearly, you had, um, you didn't have any promotion uh, to and from the Football League, and it was election. I think the last club to be promoted, or sorry, elected to the Football League were like Wigan in the 70s. So, you definitely had that disparity between football league and non-league. Um, whereas now, and certainly in the conference that we've be- become accustomed to, there's no clubs like, you know, Luton's, Oxford's, Stockport's, Wrexham's, all of these big clubs felt apart at that time. Uh, so what that meant is that you felt like there was a proper non-league feel. And that ended up with uh, things like Frickley and uh, Runcorn and Merthyr and places like this where it felt proper non-league. Now, we've spoken a few times about places like Frickley, but I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a sense of what is a Frickley. <laughs> well, firstly, back in 1983, James, I was in Baghdad when you were in your dad's bag. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, it was, it, it was sort of bizarre going to these places. And, uh, you know, side uh, crowds used to change ends. So they'd, uh, they'd sort of stand behind the goal where they were attacking. And uh, it never really sort of went off. Occasionally it did. But generally you walk past the other fans and there was sort of banter. But there was sort of always this like camaraderie in non-league. I remember we had a few incidents up at Altrincham once. And, uh, you know, sort of a, a few blokes got a bit bit shirty with us. And uh, a few of the Barnet lads went back and they, they lost their bottles. And they were like, oh, keep non-league football friendly, lads. <laughs> so, uh, but there was that sort of... There's that sort of code there and uh, places like Frickley. I mean, the first time I went there, I went there as a 14 year old uh, during a miners' strike. And um, it was, uh, it, it was, well, there's a real anti London feeling up there for starters because obviously the miners were, you know, hadn't been paid for months. The Met Police were going up there to police the, the picket lines and taunting them about, you know, being on double time, etc. So there was quite an anti-London feeling. And, um, you know, we, we got told, um, you know, by a guy called Alan Springett, who used to be on the Supporters Association. I think he was Anne Percy's brother. And he sort of, like, warned us when we came into the ground. He said, lads, don't wind them up about the miners' strike here. You know, they're really sort of quite touchy about it. So we all took it on board, and it was fine. And a couple of the lads had been down the pub, got in about 10 minutes late, and immediately went, come on, Barnet, let's send these lazy bastards back to work. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it went down really badly. It went down really badly. So, uh, yeah, so there was Frickley, there was Runcorn, uh, 
you know, there was Mirtha. Um, I mean, Mirtha was, um, yeah, an interesting experience to say the least. But, uh, you know, they were good places. Gateshead was another. I mean, Gateshead, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, they were whole streets boarded up, which, you know, as I put in the book, it's, it's, I'd only ever seen that on sort of news bulletins from Belfast at the time, you know, and it was, uh, and then in the middle of it, you had this international athletics arena, which had probably the best stand in non-league, which I think held 7,000. And uh, they used to get crowds about three or 400. Well, talk, yeah. talking, winding people up and talking a political, um, another person that gets a mention in the book, uh, Lonsdale, who's sadly not with us anymore. But um, and I'm gonna. I, I don't want to. I want to make sure we do this justice. But was it Lincoln away, Ian? Is it was that Lincoln. Right? Yeah, Lincoln, 2007, I think. There you go. We're walking down that 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 hill down from the cathedral down that way, and there was a a, a market stall there, which I think was the local socialist uh, group or something like that. And didn't he break into a, a verse of one Maggie Thatcher, uh, which went down particularly <laughs> well as well, as I recall. Um, there's something about winding up northern. It's something that we um, we didn't do very well ourselves. We tended to uh, run more than we did uh, <laughs> desperately wind people up. I think. But um, I get Dan. It's a different era. It feels it, when 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 you read the beginning of the book, it does feel like a, a different generation. Um, that those kind of days in the 80s, and I don't think it's just a matter of the fact that um, you know you would have been younger in your life. I think football really, really was different then. Just for a flavour of, of how it was, what was a typical kind of home gate towards the end of the 80s when, when we started getting a bit good again? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I should imagine when we started getting good again under Fry, I remember we had the first 2000 gate uh, against Maidstone on a bank holiday Monday. We beat them 3-1. That was the year when Scarborough won the league. So was that 80... 687 and uh, we got a 2000 crowd then um, went top of the league on the bank holiday at the end of August um, but the, I mean the crowds just rose and rose really right through up until about probably 93 and it was then they sort of tailed off and then sort of just dwindled slowly over the years uh, you know the odd sort of successful season the thing about Barnet is the fans do come out the woodwork when you know you look at the the sort of you know, the great escape games, the relegation games, and, you know, there were 5,000 crowds. You know, you look at sort of Man United in the uh, in the League Cup and, you know, we took, what, five and a half, six thousand 6,000 up there midweek. So th the interest is there, but just people just, I think there's a real apathy about, you know, about the club. And, um, you know, but uh, but going back to the crowds, I mean, when I first started going, in 83, I think our average crowd was about 750. Um, but, they, you know, it did dwindle under... We had a couple of really sort of... One really disappointing season under Roger Thompson and then Don McAllister, which was absolutely dire. And the crowds were like 550, 520. So, uh, yeah, not good. Not good. And then Fry came back from Maidstone and with Flashman and sort of lifted the place. Just the crowds have almost gone full circle to some of those numbers, I think, from when you first started going <laughs> to uh, the time when you wrote the book pre-lockdown. Um, yeah. Well, the whole book's Sorry, gone Greg, full circle. The whole book's gone full circle in a way because, you know, when I started watching uh, Barnet, we were a mid-table uh, side fighting relegation out of the other way, out of the Alliance Premier League or the Gola League or whatever it was back then. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not in too much of a dissimilar situation now. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. 
Absolutely not. I mean, as James alluded to, obviously it's a slightly different time in terms of maybe some of the teams are playing against and and whatever else. So I just thought I don't want to turn this into a uh, podcast all about stats as much as James would enjoy that. But um, Craig was asking about the home crowds. Just going back to those eighties away trips to you know some of the aforementioned places and your Ketterings, your Nuneaton's, Barrow that's in the book as well, which is a good one. Um, what sort of numbers were we taking away at that time in the eighties? Like, because obviously there was a core group, but. How big was it and how does it kind of compare to maybe where we were, maybe not now, but in our day, as it were, you know, 10, 15 years ago? Um, it's, it's probably similar to what it is now. I mean, it was probably, you know, 70 or 80. On the train, you know, it would take sort of maybe 20, 25. It depends where it was. Uh, but we always used to travel by train. There's a guy called Dave Stokes who uh, used to organise the uh, or used to organise the travel for the supporters association, and used to go and put your name down for you know wherever for Bath, for Weymouth, for Runcorn, Nuneaton, or wherever we were playing um, at the top of the East Terrace. You know where the uh, the sort of first aid hut was up there. And there's a little supporters association there. And, uh, yeah, you used to go and put your name down for the trip. Go and meet Dave Stokes at Euston or whatever station it was on a Saturday morning. And he'd hand out the tickets. And if you had more than 10, you got your ticket. You know, it was half price. So it was pretty cheap to travel around. It was like six, seven, eight quid maybe. Um, but, I mean, it was all sort of, you know, it was all going quite well. And then we went to Northwich last game of the season. And a train door was opened by one unnamed individual as the train was going along. And uh, <laughs> there was a guy called Steve Boone who went to shut the door, was gone to shut it and then ducked his head back in quickly as the Liverpool to London into City 125 <laughs> the other way. So, uh, yeah, after that, we uh, we didn't tend to travel by train so much and we went by coach. <laughs> uh, Funny thing you mentioned the supporters association and the and the role of that back then because that feels like something. I mean, because tying that together with the community feel that you mentioned as well, that's that's something that feels very very different. I think my my early days at Barnet are the probably the early mid nineties when um, the supporters association had probably had already had its finest hour at that point, but still played quite a big role in things like the, the travel and stuff like that. But I don't know, I don't know how how best to phrase it, but I guess in the, in the, those late 80s and those 90s, there really was a role for a supporters association that could say that when, when you had a chairman walkout or you had financial difficulties, it could genuinely make a difference to keeping the lights on, which I don't think is the, is the case now. Maybe it has something to do with the, the change in the way the community works at, the, at, at any football club now. Yeah, definitely, Craig. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, if you look at uh, 1993 when we were the um you know we we're on the verge of being booted out of the league we had no chairman with like no manager we had no official representation at that meeting in nottingham forest where you know it's going to be voted and there are a few fans who actually sort of stood up and made impassioned speeches but uh yeah we, we had no sort of official representation and uh you know we, we were very very lucky that we had a football club there full stop I think, yeah, I, I'm, we, cause I think all, I think me, James and Ian have all served on the Supporters Association at some point. And my, my recollection is that there was always a, a float of something about like, I don't know, 10 grand, something like that, 15 grand in the account, something like that, I think, at the time. And um, I guess way back when it really felt a bit more like a fans club because the fans could 
could come in and paint the barriers when they needed to paint the barriers. They could come in and sit, you know, serve in the tea huts and, and that money could maybe pay for the floodlights for, for, for a little while if, if it needed to. I remember in the late, well, it would have been, no, mid 2000s probably when we were on there, I think Tony Cleanthor said something like the club costs about 20 to 25 grand a week to run. And that, and that feels like a big divorce in terms of the role that fans can realistically play. And maybe part, maybe something to do with, maybe that sort of led to some of the, the gap between the, you know, the establishment side of the club and, and, and what we're like on, in, the, in the terraces. Or it certainly feels another, like anyway. Another, another theory on that would be, I think the last thing I remember the, I don't know if it was actually from the support association, but certainly it was a fans thing was a, uh, we the fans club together to buy Anthony Charles from Farnborough in 2005. <laughs> maybe, maybe the uh, the output of our money there was what <laughs> chose people to uh, step away from trying to invest in the club like that. I don't know. I think Nicky Evans was bought with fan money as well. I think the fans contributed to it, um, but we were skin. I mean, we were we were run by a board back in '83, and up until Flashman turned up in '85, and they were you know, sort of old blokes like Tom Hill or Len Lansbury. And, you know, they were nice enough old blokes, you know, but they, in footballing terms, they were skint. And, uh, you know, the club really didn't have any money. I mean, there's sort of loads of stories about, I mean, I think Gary Phillips alluded to it in the foreword that, you know, the players wanted to go in the dressing room and be first into the pavilion. So they got paid because not all the players were getting paid. And he said, and that was only if someone hadn't won out the fruit machine. So, uh, you know. <laughs> Is, uh, but the club were skin. I mean, it, it, you know, there was just sort of, I think in society, there was less money around in general. So, yeah, we've, we've talked a little bit about away days already, but I think I want to get into some of the stories for some of the away games because, um, you know, there's there's quite a few of them in the book and we've, we've heard a few over the years and clearly we've got some of our own as, our own as well. But, you know, mid to late 80s, um, like I've said before, football's a very different, different time, but, you know, the culture around football is very different as well. You know, football violence is probably, if not at its peak, you know, very high um, at the time, certainly compared to what it is now. Um, and it felt like sometimes that, you know, you boys got into some scrapes, whether you wanted to or not. Maybe chanting uh, about the minor strike at Frickley might have brought it on a little bit more than, than, than you expected, but uh, <laughs> things like that. Did you have to, did, is that something you were aware of when you went away from home, that you had to maybe defend yourselves a little bit more than maybe we would these days? Uh, what we were aware of, we always looked in the paper and saw who was going to where coming out of Euston. Euston was always a mass battleground. In fact, one of the worst rows we saw at, uh, at Euston was uh, the rugby league fans. I think it was that Northwich game that I mentioned earlier. And it was rugby league fans had come down for the Challenge Cup final, which used to be played at Wembley. And uh, there was a massive off outside uh, Euston Station. Uh, Man United also had the Cockney Reds as well, which uh, you always had to watch out for. But, yeah, you, you were very much aware of who was going where and there were certain trains that were dry, so no booze was allowed on them. So, uh, yeah, you, you know, it, was, it wasn't so much even at the game. It was like on the way or home from the game. And that Frickley game that we mentioned earlier during the minor strike, um, we had the misfortune that Millwall at the time, Millwall were managed by George Graham. And they played at York in a top-of-the-table clash. And uh, they're walking back through the train, three of them, two blokes with beards, like all blood down them and all sorts. And like a guy who was built like Herbie Smith, black guy, was six foot five and massive. And uh, they started on us because uh, they thought we were Wolves fans due to the colours. 
And uh, once they realised we were Barnet, well, they were all right, mate, and sat down and had a drink with us. And um, this, this bloke said to a guy called Peter Jones, this massive black guy, he said, uh, he said, so, uh, you know, how come you don't support Tottenham or Arsenal then? And Peter Jones said, well, would you? And he went, no, I suppose not. <laughs> 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 and uh, you know, the, luckily we sort of we managed to like, walk, you know wangle our way out of it. But another one was West Ham on the way back. We came back from Scarborough, and they've been at Sheffield Wednesday, and they came back via. They all jumped on at Doncaster, and uh, needless to say that we were rather quiet all the way back to the King's Cross from there. So uh, yeah, you have to be a bit careful, you know, who you bumped into. Yeah, well, there, well, yeah. Go on, go on, Craig. I was going to say, we, we, when we were doing some of the Downhill Second Half podcasts, one of the episodes we, we wanted to record but never got round to was um, nearly getting beaten up at uh, away games because <laughs> it felt like quite a bit of a theme. Um, and maybe we'll talk a bit about, about that today as well. But I wondered if you had any like really bad ones where you thought this is, this is not, a, you know, this is going to go badly wrong today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Stafford in the Bob Lord Trophy final. I got chased around the ground there. Uh, I the only place there was a tea hut was sort of in the corner of the Stafford end. So we've gone two nil down, and there's about five minutes to go. And I thought oh, I'll go and get something to eat and just head out to the coach. And um, Barnett scored to make it two one, and it was two legged then. So that was the first leg up at Marston Road, Stafford. And uh, Barnett scored. I cheered, and all of a sudden about. Six, seven blokes have come at me and I've had to leg it down the side of the ground uh, pretty quickly. And another one was Weymouth when um, we went there in the FA Trophy, probably about 91. They'd been relegated out of the conference by then. And um, yeah, we went there in the trophy and we, we made a weekend of it. We've gone there on a Friday night and there were five, six of us in this nightclub and a couple of the boys, one of the boys was really pissed and Started, they had these goldfish in this pond there, and he started scooping them out in his pint glass, and like you know, holding them <laughs> up. And like, these fish were swimming around before holding <laughs> them back in the pond. Uh, and the locals didn't like it, and we, um, yeah, we had to make an extremely sharp exit out of there, chased by about 30 when there were five or six. And the other one was Enfield, and um, you know, the infamous bus stop of hate. And, uh, you know, in the in the 80s, honestly, there were like these Enfield fans, big fat guys who are about 30 going around, like just tuning like 15-year-old Barnet kids. And, um, you know, I we always used to go on to the next bus stop, but we, unfortunately, they had a bunch of like sort of punks, Mohicans and all sorts of uh, guys. And, yeah, they, they sort of chased about five, six of us up a, a little uh, side street off Southbury Road up there, and I ended up hiding in someone's garden. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've come close <laughs> on a few occasions. See, yeah, I feel we... like we, uh, in, in our time, we definitely, I think we're in a different era, certainly. And, and uh, you know, within our group, there wasn't wasn't much, I'm not saying there wasn't yours, but there was no sort of agenda from us of, of getting involved in that sort of thing. I think what you were saying about that, that when, when the answer is Barnet, that quite often gets you out of a few interesting situations we've certainly had a few encounters with maybe higher league fans like Chelsea or whatever on the train and and you say Barnet and they say oh like, yeah fair enough whatever um but we had a few we had a few I think similar kind of near, near misses definitely but I think like there's a few that sort of highlighted the difference perhaps in maybe maybe our streetwise we were I think one of my favorite ones is um me and Craig were at Mansfield away about 10-15 years ago and uh 
nothing end of season game. Um, I believe someone was escorted from the ground quite early on for um, gesticulating to the home support. Uh, in that person's defence, uh, he had a friend in the home end. <laughs> it's getting quite difficult talking third person. Uh, he was a man <laughs> fan. And we, we ended up leaving the ground and going for a few beers in the town and then walking back for the end of the game to meet everyone. I think me and someone else, we were walking past the pub and we were singing Barnet songs. And uh, we had been warned by our friend who was a local to not... not I don't remember. I, I don't remember being warned. I don't know if there was something, but either way, we turned a corner and uh, a lot of uh, Burberry and whatever else clad gentlemen came spilling out this pub, uh, kind of ready for action. Um, and, and Craig's reaction to that of holding his hands up and going, "All right, all right, all right you win, you win." Um, I think is a good <laughs> sort of, uh, a good benchmark of how hard we actually were and uh, what, what what we were in for it all. And I think their reaction, at least, was a good one that they they laughed it off and thought we were all right. I think we shook a few hands and then left quite sharpish, as I recall. I think there, we, there were always certain places, weren't there, which were um, you know sort of really moody. Mansfield was one of them. You know, they they were uh, you know I don't know. They sort of got a certain type of fan there. Uh, back in our day, it was none eaten. And even before I went, there was like, you know, a, a bottle throwing contest going on between the fans in about 1980. If you are sort of people like Paul Ruffhead and those guys and all the Tea Hut boys, like, you know, I think even Percy, you know, getting involved in a row there in about 1980-81. But the worst one was, and it's in the book, was 85 when we went there. It was the week after we lost 7-0 at home in the FA Cup to Enfield. Which, which didn't happen, of course, but, uh, you know. But um, <laughs> so we've all gone there wearing black armbands as a sign of mourning. And <laughs> it's near fireworks. They're throwing fireworks at us, and Barnet fans are getting them and throwing them back before they actually went off and uh, back to the um, back of them. And there's a guy, there's a Barnet fan who's bent down to pick one up, and this Dunedin guy's ran forward and just booed him in the face. And he's, like, <laughs> out, he's unconscious on the terracing. So, led by Bully Elphick, who's just screamed, charge. Everyone's got, <laughs> everyone's got this Dunedin group, who were mainly kids. And they've all legged it, apart from one bloke who was, um, yeah, he, uh, he um, well, I think I put that the gentleman from Shakespeare's County didn't find it much ado about nothing. In the <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. but, there we are, then, the bard of Barnet, as we said. But then, <laughs> then we've gone back to the station... And um, we've still got about half an hour, 20 minutes left for our train. We're like sort of thinking, and we've seen this guy come in over the other side of the like sort of two platforms away. And we're thinking, oh, God, here we go. And he's with a load of his mates as well. We're thinking, oh, God, here we go. And luckily, this uh, intercity come from Glasgow it wasn't even due to stop there. It's just pulled up slowly on, at the station. And uh, the magical words of London Euston were at the front. And uh, back then, you could like just pull the door and jump on. There's no electronic doors or anything. And you just jumped on, and you know away we went. Thank God, because I think uh, I think we'd have got uh, a hiding of the century. I, th I think we've uh, I think we've got almost. It's quite interesting a, a gap of the generations. And you talk about the electronic doors. There's a story that straight away springs to mind there uh, from our days, where the electronic doors were an utter godsend to avoid us getting an absolute hiding at Nottingham train station. The other two are nodding their heads. So I think they know where I'm going with this, with the uh, Chesterfield away day, which you know, amongst our friends certainly is 
is well known for a number well, of different reasons. Well, I think we'd already nearly been beaten up by Chesterfield fans coming out the ground. So as, as I remember, if I remember right, we were all a bit, none of us were sober, shall we say. Someone um, upset, some people upset them a lot more than others as well. It was all a bit and, Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, I'm sure we can link the YouTube footage or something if it exists. I don't know. There's, <laughs> I think one, one of our number had um, certainly uh, been playing for time when we were one nil up quite late on by holding the ball back from the goalkeeper. Uh, at a goal okay. kick, which um, which I don't think any of us realised how big a moment that was until we watched it back and the crowd got quite animated as that happened. Anyway, I remember we walked out the ground. Well, it was that same individual as well, isn't it, Craig? Uh, there is a theme, that's for sure. Um, and uh, we left the um, we left the ground and uh, and I remember we, we came out, we turned right and again, I think some of us had realised and sort of sewed up a little bit and thought, oh, we, we aren't at home. We should be a bit careful. Some of us hadn't realised that. Some of us were walking <laughs> up at, uh, home fans and uh, screaming one nil in their face. But some of us had realised that maybe we want to tone it down, um, especially as just over the side from us was a um, a big police van uh, with police outside it. And we thought, and I, oh, I remember thinking, like, play this one cool, like, you know, like Del Boy, you know. And we, we walked over, or I walked over, and they said, lads, get in the in the back. And I remember saying, officer, officer, I don't, uh, we're not here to cause any trouble. We're on our, we're on our way home. We're, you know, and he went, it's not, it's not, and he goes, you haven't done anything wrong. But if you walk around that corner up there, the streets are lined with Chesterfield fans and you won't get home alive. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And the only bit, like, and so we went back to the, he, we all got in and he took taking us back. And I remember thinking, and I don't know why, but I thought I was good as the kind of, mediator in all this I'd keep them them sweet and I remember um it was all quite civil until people in the back started shaking the cages and stuff they got a bit upset about that pretending that they'd been nicked and then I remember the the police weren't too receptive to the idea of stopping at an offie on the way back to the station they, they didn't find that amusing <laughs> but um but we got back to the station and they dropped us off and they're like right go in there get the first train and go home and we all agreed and then as soon as they drove off, promptly headed back into town to find the, the pubs, I think. But anyway, we did get on the train. I think that probably almost leads into where you where you left off, Ian, in terms of... Yeah, well, we had to ch change at Nottingham, didn't we, for um, to get back to London. And uh, I think then via Peterborough as well, genuinely. It was, wasn't it, via Peterborough as well, as it yeah. always was. Those well, Jeff had organised it, hadn't he? Yeah, you know, he's got to pay for his Christmas somehow. Um, but yeah, no, and so we're at, at Nottingham train station on a, on a train ready to go, but the doors are open. And uh, Forrest had been playing at home that day. And um, so we're still quite excited. Barney then went away a lot anyway. So, as you know, we're basking in the glory of a 1 0 win and a lot of alcohol and whatever else. And I remember the uh, one of the older lot of, who were with us, rather than setting an example, sort of leaned over to me or, or one of those and said, Oh, why don't you, there's all those Forrest fans. Which, why don't you start? Uh, do you remember? Do you remember, Ian? We we actually that's not strictly speaking true. We'd been doing everything we could to taunt them. We'd been singing all sorts of stuff at them, and nothing was getting a rise, which was which was then uh, when that person said this. Yeah, why don't you say uh, run from the derby? <laughs> so <laughs> a number of us thought that'd be a good idea. Uh, to which there was a stampede of Nottingham Forest fans over the uh, over the bridge over the platforms. Um, and we all started panicking. And that's where, coming back to what we started a long time ago, it feels now, the electronic doors making the sound was uh, music to all of our ears. And it shut just in time. 
over the train pulling out just as they got to the bottom but, of the stairs on the platform. I think. Yeah. I, I was going to say, Craig. I was going to say, Craig. It felt like you know I was going to when I was thinking about this. I was thinking like we didn't. We never did anything, anything sinister. We never did anything like too bad. But then when Dan's telling stories about people throwing fireworks at each other and then literally someone's like leading charge and running into a group of kids in Uneaton, maybe there was a little bit more there that was uh, that meets the eye. The other, the other fireworks story that's in the book is uh, we went to Cheltenham once and the supporters coach always used to stop off at a really nice place in the Cotswolds like Stow on the Wold or Borton on the Water or really nice sort of quaint villages. And fireworks were purchased and uh, Nicky Evans has put us one nil up at Cheltenham. And to celebrate, we were we were supposed to put this rocket up in the air behind the goal and, you know, go bang and, uh, you know, everyone's sort of happy, everyone cheers and everyone claps. Unfortunately, this rocket toppled over back towards like, the Barnet fans there and uh, <laughs> sort of snaked across the terracing, like following some... Uh, some Barnet fan with his like young son, his son was probably about nine or ten years old, and both of them were sort of you know hopping around doing a Michael Flatley impression in river dance, and uh, you know, and it's like just followed them. It's sort of gone round in a circle and followed them again uh, before sort of going off in the corner. But he went absolutely mad at sort of all the Barnet fans. We've spent a long time on away days, and I'm clean to move on. But I thought just before we do, I wanted to, uh, as we are, this is book club and whatever else, and uh, I thought I'd. I'd treat everyone to a little short extract of Barnet Affair. For any Barnet fans who haven't read it yet, it is well worth uh, parting with your money to buy it from Amazon. Um, and we've talked about various good, bad and ugly away days. So I thought I'd, I'd focus on a particularly nice description I enjoyed of, of Merthyr Tidville. Um, being originally from the South Wales Valleys myself, I, I do know Merthyr and, and what a delight it is. But I think this is a, a very nicely summarised paragraph about some of our visits there in the 80s. So uh, if, you'll, if you'll sit and listen. Um, and it starts now for the ugly. Merthyr Tidville has one of the lowest life expectancies in the UK. Should you happen to live on the infamous Gurnos estate there, the chances are, if you're male, you won't see 60. It also had the worst statistics of finding your automobile intact should you happen to park it in the town while at a match. We went there twice as a friend of ours dad came from a small village nearby. The pub in this place was so rough, I'm surprised the landlord didn't have plasma on draft. It was the sort of place where the first question on the quiz night is, what are you looking at? <laughs> I just thought a very nicely surmised... Uh, I have to say, yeah. Ian, I had been waiting for the audio book, but um, like, I don't know if you're making a pitch for it or what, but... <laughs> there, were, uh, there were a couple of uh, in other instances in Wales, actually, which make the book, which uh, sort of leads on quite nicely from what we've just been talking about. And the first one was at Swansea, where... A couple of Barnet fans have come out the station, said to some bloke, "Oh, where can we get a nice quiet drink?" And he's um, he's told them to go to the Garibaldi, which was like where their main firm drank, just behind the <laughs> North Bank at the Irvetch Field. Uh, but luckily, they were sort of escorted away by some kindly gentleman before they got lynched. <laughs> and the other one was at Newport when we went there. They got relegated out of the league, and we went to the old Somerton Park. And um, the police had bunged us in the ground really early, about half one. And we're saying, look, well, you know, can we go, go for a drink? We're, you know, we're, you know, we're not troublemakers, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, it's not you we're worried about. It's the locals. <laughs> and um, we won 7-1 there. And I've, I've never seen anything like it because that ground was right in the old sort of docks of Newport. And it was a rough old place. And uh, there were kids 
literally no older than eight or nine running up to the coach after the game screaming you fucking English cunts you know and uh, I've, I've never seen anything like it ever I think the most intimidating was probably Lincoln yeah when we went up there in uh, 80, uh, 87 88 season but um, yeah I think uh, I think that yeah, that game at Newport was uh, pretty hairy as well yeah I think I think um, one thing that does underline the difference in eras is perhaps the uh, the Newport with the kids there running up to you and shouting those obscenities compared to an early away day experience of mine at Norfolk Victoria, where a bunch of kids run up to the coach and just threw eggs at it. And that was, that was, the, that was the difference. <laughs> the, very much a family sport in those days. You just throw, egg, you, throw eggs at the coach instead. Dan, did you ever have any that made you think twice about wanting to carry on going? Um, no, not really. Um, no, not really. I mean, I think uh, Lincoln was... Um, I was glad to get out of there. We asked the police for an escort and that was like really bad because there'd been a load of trouble in the first, in the opening game of the season. We'd beaten them 4-2 at Underhill and there was like loads of trouble. It was in, inside the ground and after the after the game, there was running battles for about 20, 25 minutes up and down Barnet Lane. There were people fighting in gardens. Um, you know, it was, it was really bad. And the Barnet Press reported a couple of Lincoln had gone to Barnet General with ammonia in their eyes. And uh, we went up there and we knew already that it was going to be us and them for the title, even by October. And, um, you know, we had, we had about seven or 800 there and you used to have an open side where they put you on, a bit like the Goldstone ground used to be back in the day or Peterborough was a bit like that back in the day. You know, you had an open side. Woking's a little bit like that as well. And, um, yeah, you're put on the open side and they were trying to get us from both sides. And it was bad on the pitch. Barry Fry got escorted off the pitch by the, the police. And, um, yeah, we asked the police if uh, we could get an escort out about five minutes before the end because our car was parked behind the Lincoln end. And uh, it was it was shit your pants time. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was most relieved to, uh, you know, get out of there and get into Newark for a nice bit of fish and chips on the way home. <laughs> That's got to be one of the weirdest places in the country, Newark. I don't know, from our trips to Lincoln a bit later on, obviously. I remember always stopping there uh, because you have to change trains. Bizarre place. Very strange pub. I can't know. The Newcastle Arms, I want to say. James, Something you might like recall that. that. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Sounds about right. With a yeah, David, be... James, David James lookalike and one of our friends getting bitten by a David dog. David James lookalike and one of the boys got bit by a dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely <laughs> bizarre. Um, well, moving away, <laughs> moving away from uh, all this aggro and, and nasty stuff obviously a big part i think of supporting barnet is the fact that you do it with your mates and you know this whole podcast is around people who i'm friends with certainly from going to barnet games with um and something i wanted to ask a few questions about and find out more was about the sort of groups in the ground certainly the 80s that you mentioned in the book um you've got the t-hut boys you mentioned the rainbow boys i think was in the book which might be something slightly different in 2020 um and then, obviously, as well, the, the, the sort of famous a ADB, which I know I can speak for myself and probably the other two in the group, we've sang that song with a B and an A and a B, A, R, gone all the way through and then mumbled a bit where, we're the boys of the ADB, not sure if we're allowed to do it or not in, uh, in the 21st century, trying to, trying to take up the mantle, perhaps. Um, like kind of, I suppose, what was that all about? The kind of the, 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 the named groups in the ground, how did that come about and what, and what was it all? Yeah, I don't know really how it all came about. I mean, it was uh, uh, the 
the T-Hart boys were all the guys from the 70s. So it was people like Steve Percy, Gary Mills, Pat Smith, all those guys. And they used to stand, uh, you know, halfway along what became the East Terrace. And there was a T-Hart there and they were just known as the THB, the T-Hart boys. Um, so, yeah, they, they were sort of the older crowd. The ADB were probably, you know, all, I mean, I was probably one of the youngest. I was like 15, 16 or whatever. And uh, most of them sort of about 20. And they weren't really a firm. I mean, you know, as I said, they we used to collect subs. So home games, I think you used to have to put 10p in the pot. And that went to sponsoring Bill Baldry's socks the next year or uh, <laughs> Trevor Parker's socks, I think, were one year as well. Um, and then you had the Rainbow Boys as well, who were, uh, some of them still go. There's a guy called Ian Olsen, Corinthian the Casual, and uh, Dodds. He was a Rainbow Boy. So, uh, yeah. But uh, as you say, the connotations now in 2020 would be vastly different. But uh, there, there was no one, no one who was more at the heart of the shenanigans in that West Bank than a guy called Gary Bully Elphick, who was uh, an absolute legend in there. I think yeah, the ADB <laughs> always feels like a bit of a, a mythical uh, type of, uh, I don't know, organisation, group, committee. I don't know what it was. But um, was it, I mean, they weren't, I don't know. Who, was, was, was there a leader? Was, how, did it, um, how, did it, how did you know if you were in it or not? What was, the, was, it, just, was it just a thing? I, I think you were invited in and you used to have to pay a sub. Uh, there was a guy called Peter Jones who was like known as Chairman Jones. He was like the chairman <laughs> of the group. Um, but um, no, I mean, the whole sort of experience in it, it was the whole weekend. Like, you know, you went up the Crown and Anchor in Barnet on a Friday night. Then you went back there on a Saturday lunchtime, you had a few beers, walked down the hill, went to football, then went back up, you know, and went either there or the bat and goldfish at the time or whatever. And then you got up on a Sunday morning and played football for the ADB. So, uh, you know, we had our home ground at, first of all, at Hallowick in Muswell Hill, then Brook Farm. And uh, then you used to go back to the Crown and Anchor for, uh, for um, you know, for a few beers afterwards and used to have roast potatoes in there prepared by a landlord who had um, it had an accident in a like a welding accident a couple of years before, and one finger was sort of glued onto the next, and uh, he was known by the name of Brian Sausage Finger. Again, it's an era thing, isn't it? It's, it's like we had a, I suppose, a, an unofficially named group like HYDA and what have you, where, where the uh, de facto leader took subs in the in the form of tax and of course he ended up he, we didn't we didn't sponsor anyone's socks we um we just paid for his uh paid for his christmas as we uh, as we talked about earlier on but again it's an era's thing isn't it yeah i'm glad i got jeff tax in the book actually because uh, it, <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it was uh it was uh I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna name him, but you know, if if we're oh, if, we, if, we, if, we, if we're doing it, if we're doing really it, then Jeff, Jeff Tax is a real thing. Jeff Tax got in the book, but I think it was his song that made it stay to his wedding day as well. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It does follow you around a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't want to name names, but wild horses wouldn't drag the name of Jeff Searle out of my mouth. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the the other one was well, it was great about Jeff was um, you know, obviously sort of. Paul Fairclough was, <laughs> Paul, Paul was known for having a big cock. Yeah. And uh, uh, Jeff <laughs> appeared on, I think it was Radio London with Danny Kelly. And uh, I think I texted 
uh, like a question to ask. <laughs> and um, you know, I think our away following that season was bigger than anyone else's. And um, Danny Kelly said to Jeff, Paul Fairclough has got a bigger what in the conference than anyone else. <laughs> and you can hear Jeff like pausing and umming and ahhing and uh, sort of like, <laughs> and then like, I've immediately got a text from him straight away going, you wanker. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's wonderful. That's, that's an unknown story. That's, that's fantastic. Great story. I just wanted with that, uh, you know, you're saying about the groups and the ground and everything. Um, We've, we've talked, on, I think on the first one of these, we talked about like we kind of, you moved around the ground over your time as a Barnet fan. So like a lot of us started in the North Terrace, the North West. I think maybe later on some of the youngsters have started in the South and then moved to the East. Was there that kind of gradual building up to moving over to the West Bank uh, and being, being amongst it? And as well, I suppose the second part of that, did you have, because I know we, we certainly would have felt it in the early 2000s, was there kind of like a group that you aspired to, you know, you mentioned you were quite young, you're the younger members of the ABB. Did you kind of have that where you're sort of following the group around and wanting to be part of it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I went, I went straight in the West Bank. That's where that's where you wanted to be. That's where all the sort of, you know, the noise came out of and that's where all the sort of shenanigans happened. And uh, it was a very sad day when the West Bank got pulled down in, in was it 92, 93? Um, and it was because everyone used to try and get in under there when it rained and um, it became the police said it's unsafe. So it got pulled down, but then we went on to the East Terrace and um, we had some good times in that East Terrace. I mean, you know, you boys were all in there as well. And uh, that 05 season in there was, uh, was absolutely superb. And some of the stats in there were, you know, when the goals went in were, were outrageous, you know, I think I remember a Chris Plummer 90th minute winner against, Gravesend, I think it was, or Ebbsfleet, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or what they were called at the time. And um, that was like, you know, that was like pretty bad. There, I mean, there was sort of some serious stacks in there. All three win Halifax with their goals against Halifax when we won the league. And uh, yeah, I mean, but the only place uh, like really in the ground, I mean, I never, I only ever went once into the main stand. And that was for a Capital League, which like a reserve game. So uh, I never actually sat in there for a proper game of football at all. It was like, you know, always either in the West Bank or the East, really. Or the Western yeah. Drive. There's always, there's always someone in the East Terrace, wasn't there, at the front going, stop pushing, you're, you're not being safe. And it was very hard to work out what they were doing there in the first place, to be honest. But yeah. Especially in that section of it, when, yeah. where it did. Like, where, where, like Dan said, you know, some of the um, stacks or... Bundles or whatever you want to call it. Yes, surge. Someone was going to get done, weren't they? There's a phase <laughs> of that. Someone was going to get pushed Sir, over. Surge, <laughs> yeah. Someone was going yeah. to get done at some point. But yeah, like Chris Plummer uh, against Gravesend, that was a that was up there. I seem to remember ending up on the floor several times. Simon Clist against Shrewsbury in the playoffs. Yeah, things like that. That was that was something where when that East Terrace was busy, yeah, that was that was you know something something else, wasn't it? Steve Cox rifled in a 30-yarder against Enfield in 1986 and you know there were people having to be picked up off the floor and you know that was like that was pretty bad and uh you know there's a big crowd in there as well I think there was like 4130 and there's probably a few more in there actually there's a bit of creative accounting going on but the other one was Friedman when he scored at Man City in the seats uh up there and uh that was like really bad because like People were sort of toppling over seats, and I'm surprised no one was hurt. Then I'm really surprised. well. If you remember, if you remember something like that, Dan, Gemma Swindon away—that's got to be in the top five ever, I think, for me. Well, Birchall. 
Birchall, yeah. 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 I, I was all right there because I was hanging off a stanchion above everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I, was all right. <laughs> I seem to remember Craig's glasses going. Everyone, everyone was on the floor. Everyone was jumping <laughs> out. Like... I, uh, I, I ended up, I was underneath Big Dan after that goal <laughs> went in. On the floor. <laughs> I remember getting caught underneath Big Dan in a pile on a train once. You know, I don't know why it was one of. That's the same day. It was on the way back. On the yeah. way back, the, the, the thirty man trying to get from the floor to the ceiling on a Great yeah. Western train <laughs> of people. <laughs> I don't know whose idea. Actually, I think I don't think it was Keith Doe's idea. I, I remember he didn't take part either in that. Particular... Watch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he directed. Um, Dan, how much? Um, how much was music uh, uh, a part for you? And, and I don't mean Westy singing songs on the, on the terrace, but I mean, when I, when I think about some of the moments that, that certainly us three bonded over and was quite big for us, there was certainly almost a, an anthem or a, a type of music that was, that was playing. And I still can't hear things like the lightning seeds without thinking uh, of Underhill in the mid nineties. Was there a, a, an element of that for you guys as well? Definitely, definitely. I'll try to get that across in the book. Um, you know, and and that's sort of the similarity. So when I started going, sort of people would, you know, people would talk about bands like, you know, The Cure, New Order, The Smiths, you know, and it was like, yeah, it was sort of quite big in sort of mid-80s, sort of the whole scene, the whole sort of culture. And then we got that back again around sort of 2003 to 2005, 2006 on the East Terrace. Yeah. You know, I put that in there when you had that sort of next indie phase and you had like Block Party, you know, the future heads, hard fire. And there was like, you know, a real sort of scene. And many times, you know, Barnet fans would go to a game or whatever. And I remember going off with Westing to gigs in Sat on Saturday nights. So you go to the game, cut the beers, and then uh, down into London for the gig. And, uh, you know, I remember sort of, I think I've been with a few of you guys actually see hard fire in the past. And, uh, you know, it, it was uh, it's definitely, I think there is a link between sort of terrorist culture, music, clothes, football and you know the football is just a sideshow really yeah and that's a little bit about how some of the groups formed wasn't it really a lot of us would go to gigs as well as football sometimes you go to a gig on a friday night and then you turn up at underhill the next day quite similar to some of the stories you're talking about and you know you could substitute the uh what was it what was the pub called that you were talking about i can't remember what it's called but crown, it, 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 crown anchor and then we, we'd have and we'd have, have the weaver that would be the, that would be the that would be our little home wouldn't it there's a whole piece of that, isn't there? Because when you think about it, you mentioned playing on the on the Sunday morning, playing football together. We had the supporters team where we played. We had the Weaver, you had the Crown and Anchor, and then we all had that kind of access, I suppose, to Central London for the for the the music scene as well. And and it's that whole thing that makes, you know, without getting too serious again, the identity of a football club and the community feel about it. And that, that almost felt like bits of that got taken up taken away one by one. In fact. You know, even even with you know the introduction of all-seater stadiums, obviously not at Barnet, but at other places. But again, when you look at the the, the stand in the at the Hive, maybe which is uh, the main side is the, the seated side, it does it does seem to take a bit of that. I don't know what it is, but take some of it away anyway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I you know uh, saying that. I mean, you know, if you're into Bangra and there's a bit of an Indian wedding going on downstairs, then <laughs> it, it might be your cup of tea, perhaps. I don't know. But or uh, chicken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chicken's the other thing as well. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's. Uh, I think it's uh, those days are consigned to history now, aren't they? 
unfortunately. So, unfortunately. The, the music stuff's massive. I think, like, you know, I'll probably think it's top few albums, whatever, all of them are, are linked to to that time. I, you know, I think we talk about different gigs and stuff. Kasabian at Ali Paddy 2005, I'm having it that like 20% of the crowd was Barnet fans. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the other thing that I've got across in the book as well is, uh, you know, sort of 1989, 90. Um, it was sort of like the Acid House era and warehouse parties and stuff like that. And um, yeah, let's, uh, let's say that Saturday afternoons were a little bit quiet at times due to our Friday night excesses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so some of the book is um, also talks about some of the people that are part of these groups and you know there's a lot of characters at barnet and you know when you go to a club like barnet and the crowd is two or three thousand and, and so on and so forth you get to know people you get to know uh you know people that aren't necessarily your friends uh but people that are around the ground and um before we go any further though there's one person particularly that you've mentioned in the book that i don't think any of us know but um certainly you would have known but he was known by the name of pervert sean i wonder if you can give us a little bit of uh <laughs> background is what is what is pervert sean all about yeah pervert's a, a man who used to have a long raincoat a moustache and lank greasy hair and uh i first came across metaphorically speaking pervert <laughs> sean, um, uh, plymouth away in the in the fa cup in 1984 and there was a blow-up sheep no there's a blow-up doll actually that had been taken on the uh with us for the day I don't know whose it was, but it just sort of accompanied the Barnet fans. And Pervert Sean went off with this uh, blow-up doll at the end of the day. He was just known as Pervert Sean. And him and Bully Elphick on away games, would they would videotape Top of the Pops and, and talk about, you know, Jay Aston from Bucks Fizz or Sheena Easton or Wendy James from Transvision Vamp or, um, uh, you know, the girl from the Primitives, Tracy Tracy Primitive, or whoever had been on Top of the Pops was female, they were generally discussed on an away game on the Saturday by Bully Elphick and Pervert Shaw. Moving swiftly on, um, so yeah, you, you mentioned there that Bully Elphick, who uh, sounds like an interesting character, certainly from lo lots of bits in the book, we're not going to go into each one, one by one, but his name comes up a lot and certainly sounds like an interesting guy. Uh, there was an incredible story as well in there about a chap who worked for the Royal Mail in Enfield. Uh, which I, I won't spoil the punchline of that one for anyone who's not read it, but that, that genuinely had me laughing out loud about that bit. I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and someone else you mentioned earlier was the name Stephen Boone. Now, I, I've got to be genuinely honest, and I, I'd like to think it probably applies to a few Barnet fans of my generation, probably below me as well. I thought that Stephen Boone was a, fi a fictional character. I thought he was from the Westie song about uh, Amber Moon, um, I saw you drinking alone. I thought I'd come over there because the bees are at home. Stephen Boone, I saw you doing the moon. I thought I'd come over there and pick it out with a spoon. <laughs> I mean, I've joined him with that many times. James definitely has as well. Yeah. Um, I, I want to know as well, Dan, if you can shed any light on what that song's about. Um, but he certainly sounded like a character. Yeah, the song, uh, the song is sort of... Sort of developed really because it came from Steve Boone actually when he was about maybe mid-twenties went out with this girl I don't know where he found her but he brought her in the crown anchor she was about 60 if she was a day I mean you know she, <laughs> she wouldn't be alive now you know and I don't think she I think she had about one tooth in her head 
and uh, her name was Pat. And um, yeah, and the, the song went from there. And um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I don't know sort of how it's how it's developed over the years, but Steve Boone was an interesting character. He was he was about eight stone, like you know, wet through. And um, but he he just sort of just said he didn't care what he said. I mean, like you know, we went out a hole once. This old bloke's come there, and there's a few sort of boys there. And Booney's gone, get back to your coffin, like that. Sort of <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, the other one I got in there was, you know, we used to go away for Nicky Evans' birthday, and we went to Hamburg, and we we're on this train. <laughs> <laughs> we stopped. Sorry, off uh, before, before Dan, Dan, before you do the story, because I think you went away for Nicky Evans' birthday. Can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, the ADB used to go away for Nicky Evans' birthday, 6th of July, every year. We used to go to Amsterdam, we went to Calais, uh, we went to Paris, uh, Ostend, and Hamburg. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so we're on this train. We've got this train to, uh, I don't know, it's either Cologne or, or Bremen, because we stopped off, used to be able to jump off German trains back then. And I think it was a train between Bremen and Hamburg. And Booney and I are having a cigarette sort of in between the compartments. And this bloke's asked this in perfect English, German guy, look, do you mind putting your cigarette out because it's blowing in the carriage and people are complaining? So I said, yeah, no problem at all. And uh, Booney said, look, mate, it's no need to have a go at me just because my granddad beat your granddad at war. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So uh, that's Steve Boone, and there's many more Booney stories. But uh, you know, he's uh, he, he's uh, he's bought a copy of the book actually, and he, he loves it. So uh, yeah, I, I can imagine he probably do a few royalties for his mentions. It's funny that with the uh, obviously downhill second half, the website was created in 2009. I think that's right, James. That's right. Yeah. And I, I can just remember texts, or maybe it might be MSN Messenger back then, going back and forth. On what the name should be for the website, and one of the, one of the shortlisted names was "Pick It Out with a Spoon," which uh, <laughs> would have been would have been a good name, but very very niche. So I think we probably probably chose one that's had a wider appeal. But uh, yeah, none the wiser still. But yeah, no, uh, a great song. Um, that kind of leads us on. It, it's something you mentioned in the book, and we, we talked about here: characters of Underhill of Barnet, um, very much part of sporting a club like that. Is you know you do very quickly become accustomed to some of the characters and definitely some of the phrases and things you hear around the ground. And I think songs in particular, uh, you know, the one I alluded to there is, is one example, but, you know, Mr. Darren West, who, who features in your book quite a lot, his name's come up on our podcast before, uh, certainly is known for his, his songwriting ability, as it were, on the terrace. So I think one that definitely deserves a mention to a wider audience was in the first season in the conference, uh, when we got relegated in the early 2000s, playing Hayes at home uh, shortly after the, the dance track uh, Turnaround by Fats and Small uh, had come out. And uh, he, he adapted the lyrics to, Hayes, what's wrong with you? You're looking kind of down to me. You're going down with Dover. <laughs> Which, <laughs> the song from what I've just done there, and I do apologise for the singing, is one of the most genius pieces of ter terrorist chant writing ever. Um, I wonder if any of you lot have got any any more Westisms or particular Underhill or away game chants that stand out for you. Yeah, I, I think I think there are some absolute geniuses uh, who you know who go on 
football terraces and just you know that that is their that's their stage isn't it that is their their sort of um you know that is their soapbox and um you know there are some absolute sort of really good ones come through um but i mean a couple of songs i've sort of forgotten about and have been reminded to me um since um sort of since um you know, writing the book, which I've sort of forgot to put in there. There was uh, an advert in the 80s as well. It was for Scotch videotapes, yeah? And it was, you know, how they didn't fade, you know, because videotapes, you know, I'm really showing my age here now talking about videotapes, but, you know, often they used to fade if you used to play them or whatever. And uh, many a Barnet fan had porno, porno films that used to uh, fade away. But there's a skeleton there. And they used to sort of do the clapping on the Scotch videotapes and uh, they used to sing, you know, re-record, not fade away. And this skeleton looked exactly like a certain uh, Barnet fan's father who used to go, the Barnet fan still goes and what, well, he follows the team from afar, shall we say. And his father looked exactly like this skeleton. So uh, whenever he walked past, Barnet fans used to sing, win the league, not fade away. But uh, sadly, during that time under Fry, we did tend to fade away. So there you go. Uh, so, yeah, going back to the football, again, something jumping around a bit with the book, but um, certainly something that I think all three of us enjoyed reading about as we weren't part of it was the Enfield rivalry. Um, now, obviously, we were probably the first, maybe second generation of Barnet fans who had an appreciation for it, but had no concept of it because we never saw Barnet play Enfield. You know, it was, it, that was something that was kind of, it consigned to history. Um, but, you know, it sounded like a really kind of poisonous, uh, proper atmosphere. Like when you think of Derby games, like it's certainly something that you don't see uh, these days at Barnet anyway. Um, what was it like? I know you mentioned earlier the bus stop of hate, and that's something that I was, I was pleased you alluded to because I've heard various of that. But, you know, how, how nasty was that Enfield rivalry? Um, and what were the games like? Well, let me put on record, I'd like to categorically state that I still fucking hate Enfield, and I always <laughs> will. <laughs> um, uh, they, I mean, they were good. That was the problem, is they were good. They, I mean, they, they won the league um, the last year before we went up, or before there was automatic promotion out the the conference, and they were a much better side than us. But even, even though they were much better, they, we had similar amounts of fans. We had sort of 800 you know, when they were good, they used to get sort of 800 and we used to get 800 when we were crap. Um, and then once we got good, we sort of, you know, sort of over, over swamped them a little bit, especially, you know, when we went over there, there were times when we'd have more fans, you know, over there than, than sort of, than they would. Um, but there, I mean, there was maybe sort of like two years when we got good and they finished, I think about fourth or fifth. And I think that was when the hatred was at sort of, you know, fever point, really. And, you know, there were Barnet fans getting whacked. And, uh, you know, as I said, at the bus stop of hate. And then, you know, there was the infamous quiz night as well, where some bright spark uh, organised this uh, this quiz night with about 10 tables of Barnet fans, about six of Enfield. And, uh, you know, it just, it just erupted into a mass brawl. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, people were throwing, like, throwing chairs around, there's a guy called Peter Jones got glassed in the side. Actually, it got quite nasty. But um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it was it was bad. It was bad, and there's all that Spurs Arsenal undercurrent to it as well. And um, you know, you had to be sort of a little bit careful over there as well. But um, yeah, I, I always feel like we were a little bit 
so our, our generation was a little bit cheated out of a proper rival. I, I, you know, when I first started going, Enfield was a supermarket, or certainly Southby Road was, I think, and um, and Asda or whatever it is now. And I think we had um, we had Orient, who we didn't like, but they were probably still a little bit bigger than we were. And you had Fulham as well for a short period of time. And then I know the, the Stevenage thing came along, but it felt very. Uh, fabricated. It didn't feel like an like a like a proper hatred. It felt like we put it on a bit. Yeah, I I, I think just just to elaborate on that, I think yeah, Stevenage definitely was one for me where I, I started coming along in two thousand and one. So it was it was probably about ten years after we'd ever played Enfield. So uh, as Ian alluded to, you know, you join in with the songs and you you sort of you try and be try and hate Enfield, but it's very difficult to do that when you don't actually understand exactly what that whole thing was like. And you're talking about getting chased down out of bus stops and getting whacked by 30 year old blokes and having fights in the, in the social club on, on a quiz night. It's very hard to relate to that. So you almost try and force it a little bit with, with, uh, with Stevenage in particular. And that's, I think probably how it felt. There was a little bit of the whole Wesley thing, but I guess for, for you, for you, Dan, it was, it was not even remotely close, right? No, I mean, when I first started going to watch Barney at 83, uh, there were three sort of big non-league sides in North London. There was Wheelstone as well. And Barnet were, Barnet were like third out of three. I mean, we were, we were the worst side. Wheelstone won the double in 85 uh, under Brian Hall. And they had, you know, they were really physical. They had uh, Vinnie Jones in their side. They had Stuart Pearce in their side. He uh, wasn't in that double winning side. He'd gone to... Coventry or Forest by then or wherever he went but I mean they, they, there was a nasty place to go over there Wheelstone it was um, you know they had a load of fat blokes as well who would uh, relish whacking Barnet fans and um, yeah it was it was um, you know it wasn't a good place and uh, I think I think that might be quite spicy when we play them uh, you know when fans are allowed back in because obviously now there's the all the links to you know they think we've nicked the hive off them which you know, we probably have really, and um, they can know, have it back. What's that? They can have it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, but I think I think that might be quite spicy, and I think when we go over there, I'd, I'd uh, you know, it might be a, a low profile, you know, and uh, uh, I think Wheelstone might be the real, uh, might be real rivalry again in the future. Well, I remember Boreham Wood as well. We we had a. Was it a Heart Senior Cup? Or it wouldn't have been that. Whatever it would have been. What? Well, was it? Was it? Hearts? It was Heart Senior Cup. Yeah, it you're was right. Heart Senior Cup. Yeah, yeah. And they were not. They were nothing then. They were like, I was saying, they in Hearts. But anyway, yeah. So I remember we went there. That that's probably ten years ago, maybe a bit more than that. And I'm, I'm, nearly seventeen. But... Is it really? <laughs> well, I remember that being. Yeah. Bit, we're old, bit, mate. We're getting old. Anyway. I remember that being really quite nasty, actually. As sort of as you you said, Dan and Stevenage was never. Like and Stevenage, Orient, Fulham, all of them were never nasty. I think it was it was a bit pathetic, really. But Boreham Wood um, was one of those ones where we swapped tens at half time as well, and um, they meant it. I think that lot they yeah, all they uh, hated us. Yeah, it must uh, it must be something to do with the towns because there was particularly nasty chants happening that night that were just you know you shouldn't shouldn't be hearing that at a football ground. But yeah, they really uh, had it in for us, and we just all stood there going, "What are you talking about?" And this is why you should care. West London. Yeah. Well, there, there was a game with Boreham Wood uh, way before my time. I think it was 1974. And they played this, I think it's called the Studio Cup. And uh, 
the Boreham Wood fan produced an axe and apparently uh, oh. was chasing Barnet fans back up Barnet Hill with, uh, you know, flailing this axe around. And, uh, yeah, n- needless to say, not many of the Barnet fans hung, ar- hung around, like, you know, finding out whether it was real or not. But, uh, yeah, I think I think Boreham Wood have got sort of a reputation, you know. I mean, they've kicked off, haven't they? They kicked off, was it a work stop in the FA Trophy a few years back? And yeah, they had a few in that run. Blackpool and Torquay, I think they've both had in the FA Cup where they've like all come out in numbers, but they've never turned out for us in either of the two league games that we've been there. It's, it's actually been really boring. It's the most boring derby ever. Um, you know, going over there, we've seen two games, one of which finished one nil, and then the other one nil nil, and they were both crap. Well, <clears throat> maybe to liven it up then, take it away from the, the dull and the boring and go back to. Um... To, to a subject I think all three of us really want to discuss and something that we feel a bit uh, deprived, mi- miss, missing out on, which was the Barry Fry and Stan Flashman era. Um, Barry Fry in particular, on a positive note, I think for all three of us, having none of us remembering ever seeing him being the manager for Barnet ourselves, he's still a bit of a hero for us and part of, I think, the Holy Trinity, as you described the, the three uh, league-winning managers in, in the book. What was it like being a Barnet football fan under Barry Fry, with Stan Flashman as the chairman, uh, it was it was wonderful. I mean, there were goals flying in at both ends. Um, but the thing is, I don't think we really appreciated it at the time because we, you know, the Holy Holy Grail was like the football league, and that's where we wanted to go. And um, you know, we always we always thought we'd be eternal bridesmaids. We never ever thought that we would actually, you know, get there. We always, you know, always saw Barnet have this history. You know, as, as Downhill second half have said of promoting disappointment since 1888. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, th- I thought that that was, um, we would just be eternal bridesmaids. So I don't think we really appreciated it at the time. But looking back, you know, give me that over the, uh, you know, the sort of the turgid crap on offer that we've seen in the last few years. Yeah. Well, talking about not turgid crap, um, obviously there's, two generations of, of, of champions and, um, you know, 1990-91, obviously, with, um, with, with Fry and Flashman in charge after so many years of, of finishing second uh, versus 04-05, of course, which is more our generation. I think we were probably around about the same sort of age um, for the respective uh, two seasons. Um, as far as they are concerned against each other, um, you know, or, or comparisons with each other, what would you what would you have down as uh, differences or, or or great moments between the two? Oh, good question. Um, I think uh, the 1990 side or 91 side was. Um, I mean, you had two extremely prolific goal scorers there in Bull and Carter, and I think the 05 side sort of everything went through Gratz really. Uh, I think the 05 side were probably more workmanlike. Uh, I thought that midfield that we had under Paul Fairclough, you know, of Lee, Sinclair, Bailey, uh, I thought was absolutely superb and like a real engine room and ran, ran its arse off every game, all season. Um, but I don't think you can, you know, it's like apples and oranges. I don't think you can sort of uh, distinguish between the two. I think, uh, you know, let's let's embrace both for, for both being, you know, wonderful sides and, uh, you know, great eras. And I think sort of, you know, I really, really enjoyed 2005. That, that was one of my most enjoyable seasons ever as a Barnet fan. 
just out of interest, did you go much in the, the third one in the 14-15 season where we won the league? Uh, yeah, I went a few games. I didn't I didn't go that much. So I went to a few. Um, obviously, I was there at the Gateshead game picking up the glory at the end. But yeah, I mean, I went, I went to a few of them, but not, you know, not that many. Because we, I think we we had it's just just uh, say you know you've got the perspective of both of them before we've got the perspective of definitely the one before that and I remember that Gateshead game we um, we'd been to a few games I mean, uh, you know uh, at the high of that season where we, for whatever reason we'd come back to an extent but never really got into it. I know James and I were at Kidderminster in the penultimate game of that season uh, where we could have blown it could have won it uh, and it carried on. Uh, I remember for that last game, Craig had uh, organised that we, we did the hospitality at the Hive, which is what it's all geared up for anyway down there. Isn't it? And then, again, in Craig's infinite wisdom, we went to the game wearing suits. And uh, Craig, had, again, it's all, it's all Craig, he bought us. They were more orange than amber, let's be fair, ties. So we were wearing a suit, we, our own suits, but with a, a tie bought by Craig, so we had matching ties. Um, and we were right down the front of the stand over the side of the dugouts. Um, and like yourself, I feel like we were kind of enjoying maybe other people's glory because we hadn't really been in it all season. But when we ran on the pitch at full time, there's great footage of James was the first one on, I think. Very, very David Cleet-esque uh, <laughs> running behind Martin Allen on the pitch. But uh, being on the pitch there wearing these suits with orange ties and a lot of people asking us for photographs. And uh, I think one of us might have asked, you know, why do you want a photograph? Oh, because you're players, aren't you? I think they thought they thought we'd come from behind the dugout. I just said I was I was an injured goalkeeper. I thought, like, given given the, the physique of myself, I'm not going to be a rapid winger, am I? And uh, yeah, we, we, they're posed for several photos, holding scarves and whatever else, like kids in and everything. Um, but <laughs> once that was done. And I think the suits helped us. We blagged our way into the players' bar, as I recall, as well. Yeah. After, after we saw Martin Allen, John Akinde, and whatever else, uh, and we're a bit of a nuisance in there. But aside from all that excitement, and all, we had the trophy as well, didn't we, too? Yeah. It, it did feel removed. It didn't feel quite maybe the same. And certainly, there was no comparison for me to those feelings from 2005. You know, you talked about in your book and earlier as well, Dan, about the, the Halifax game. Uh even though, you know, the elation with the league, the Halifax and Gates games were poles apart, I thought. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, th I think, uh, I think, I think it's also the hive as well. I mean, I think sort of in Underhill, we all felt, you know, it was in Barnet, we all felt part of that community. And, uh, you know, I think sort of going over to the hive, it, it still feels a little bit alien to me. I don't know how it feels to you guys. I mean, there are some people who, who blindly follow and, uh, you know, sort of in, still enjoy the experience. But, uh, you know, I've, I've always found it, A, a pain to get to, but B, it doesn't feel like my area. It doesn't feel like my team. Yeah, no, I think, I think we're the same. We're, we're going to aim to, I think we've got plans to discuss this at a greater length another time on, on the podcast. Um, and, yeah, you know, it, it, it totally is. It, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think uh, I think you speak for me as well on that one. Having to complete the three. One of the biggest things of that game, actually, and we we're just going back to the, the third one, if you like, to complete the trinity, was uh, when we were in the bar after the game with the players, and we rightly or wrongly shouldn't have been there, I think we asked one or two of them, uh, where are you going off to now afterwards? 
And if I recall, and I could be wrong about this, so I don't want to, I'm not saying this is gospel, but they all said they were kind of, the people were like going off here, there and everywhere. Whereas we've had several members of the 05 team on here, you know, Strevens, Tynan, King, who still now, when we mentioned it, talk about one of the greatest nights of their lives was the, you know, post Halifax night out in the Weaver and then Batchwood, where they were all together. You know, they said even Simon Cliss, the quiet man was in there and amongst it. That 2015 team at the Hive, out of Barnet, you know, the fans even, where, where'd you go? I think we ended up in the Railway Tavern late doors. Um, but, you know, that's a 30-minute cab ride back from there. Um, and it's just, yeah, the, the fragmented nature of that even, I think, really epitomised even well, the good times, why it's not what it was. I think, I mean, even to add to that, Ian, we, when we've done this podcast, we've invited pretty much any, anyone and everyone we can get details for uh, to come on here. And um, there's only... There's only one person from the that that team that that won at Gate uh, home to Gates had won the league that year that we've invited on, and they uh, let us down on two different occasions. Whereas maybe players from from the other the other teams were very very keen to come on and talk about it, and even that just shows the gap between the fans and the the players of maybe the more modern era as well. It's not it's not the uh, it's not the same. Dan, when you were um, when you were sort of in the early period in that promotion winning team what was the proximity to the players like were you was it something were they accessible uh put it this way jeff cooper offered to drive our transit van up to barrow for us <laughs> <laughs> um yeah they were i mean you'd go into the old social club there and uh you know you'd have a chat with gary paul would always have a chat with us and uh, he was a lovely guy uh phil gridlett would always have a chat and he's probably got a, um, a competition to see between him and Paul Cannon, who's got the worst language I've ever heard at Underhill. But uh, yeah, no, they were good guys and they'd, they'd all have a beer with you. And sometimes the opposition players would have a, like, a beer with you. I remember um, uh, Paul Jones, the Kidderminster keeper, who went on to Southampton for a bit after. He'd been taken off injured. He'd been taken off up to Barnet General come back to the ground with a fit like the physio or whatever and the coach had pissed off and left them there <laughs> and, uh, and they were waiting for a lift or someone they knew but they were just having a beer with us in the uh, in the social club so i think players in general were a lot more sort of accessible back then but going back to the 2016 as well i think barry fry was always very inclusive about the fans i think paul fairclough was very inclusive you know and made us like made sure that the players you know, went through the Durham suite, as you as you alluded to earlier. And, you know, Martin Allen, I'm a big Martin Allen fan, but he's probably the least loved out of that trinity. And, uh, you know, for loyalty reasons, perhaps. And, um, you know, I think sort of that side, you know, there's there's not that many heroes in that side. I mean, Akinde, obviously, and Luisma. Um, but really, you know, there's sort of not that many people who go down in folklore amongst Barnet fans, the way Gary Ball, Nicky Evans, uh, Grazioli, you know, Ian Hendon, people like that will go down as, as sort of, you know, real sort of leaders. And um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's, maybe it's a sign of the times. Maybe it's me. I don't know. Funny, because I think Martin Allen probably for, for us three, having missed out on Fry and, um, and maybe having some sort of indifference towards uh, Paul Fairclough Martin Allen's probably our our, our, our favourite one but then again we all kind of came together under that first Allen season so may, maybe it is it's generational and maybe it is linked to what else is going on around the time it's difficult I think yeah 
Yeah, we talk a little bit about the hive and the difference between that that fourteen fifteen league winning season and the, and the league winning season before. But you know, it's easy to forget that. I guess the last few years at Underhill were uh, quite a lot of apathy amongst the fan base and on the pitch as well. Um, you know, we weren't we weren't a very good football team. Uh, we, we we had the last four seasons at Underhill where we had to go to the last day of the season needing something to stay up. And clearly we did that three times, which were great occasions. But you know, the fourth time we, we finally succumbed away at Northampton. Um, you know, Underhill, as much as we love it, um, you know, it did feel like there was a little bit of a decline there as, as we were leaving. Did, did you feel that, Dan? Did you feel that there was a difference between the Underhill that we left and the Underhill that you started going to? Very much so. I think... Uh... I think that, you know, take out that 2015 season and the last 15 years in general have been pretty crap. You know, it's been pretty poor, pretty dire football. Um, and I think, you know, I think also if you only have the ambition of actually staying in that league, uh, you there will come a time when you don't realise that ambition. And I think you've got to you know, have more ambition rather than finishing third from bottom and just staying in the league. And, you know, whether it was crowds, budgets, I don't know. But, you know, I agree with you. It, it was stale. It was dire. And, um, it, you know, it was, um, it, it was, it was, it was poor. I mean, saying that, the odd thing lit us up, you know, things like Edgar Davids arriving, etc. you know, that sort of, Got us noticed a little bit, but uh, you know, in general, it, it was pretty sort of pretty dire times. Yeah, like you said, like you say, those those bright moments did tend to fade very quickly, didn't they? You know, it wouldn't be long after Edgar Davids joining or or a big name joining or a big win somewhere that we'd be two 0 down at home to Rochdale on a Tuesday night very quickly. Do you know what I mean? It was that it was that sort of stuff that was quite depressing towards the end. Yeah, it was, and um, you know, I think it was. Um, it was stale. I think. I think we could have been a lot more creative when we were actually in Barnet um, about getting fans in, and uh, our pricing structure as well could have been a little bit, a little bit better. And you know, I remember once I went on a Saturday afternoon. I didn't go to Barnet for some reason, and I met up with some friends in the railway tavern in New Barnet, and he had all these like illegal football streamings, you know, coming in from, I think, Saudi Arabia or Scandinavia, and you could watch any premiership game. And the place was absolutely chock-a-block with football lads just watching games on TV rather than going to support their local side. And I thought, there's something wrong here, you know, and I thought that we never actually... We never actually sort of teamed up properly with the local papers back then. There, you know, there was never actually like billboard advertising on Barnet Hill. Well, you know, how many Barnet fans would have gone or how many people in Barnet would have seen that billboard advert, you know, on, on Barnet Hill by the station? And I just think there, it was uh, it was stale. But I think the club were at fault as well as much as, as the yeah. fans. I think it was it was never made, and it still hasn't been. It's never been made affordable, and I know whatever people will say about that, but it's true. It's never been made to appeal to the casual fan, and like like you said there, it's almost like it was a bloody secret society. Like I know when I was at school, even, and I was you know at the height of my Barnet supporting, uh, people thought that you know it, it was like no one knew anything about. It. I went to school in North London, not far from Barnet, but not in Barnet. But even then, it was like so removed from the knowledge of everyone else because there was nothing out there, no marketing, no nothing at all. Um, and I agree with you. I think that's, that's something that 
and I think even now, you know, you talked about in the book that the fact the crowds at the hive for several reasons, you know, why they are what they are. But ha has there been the engagement in the right way out there to get people in? Um, no, I don't think there has. I think I think the uh, the marketing strategy has been pretty poor. Um, in some ways, you know, it's been very good. I thought, you know, when we had Kevin Mullen there as sort of commercial manager, I thought sort of we were in the news regularly and, you know, there were things like, you know, the Grand National Winner Earth Summit, which was owned by Ricky George coming out of Underhill or, the, you know, the deal would loaded. And I thought that there was, there was always something to keep Barnet, not only in the, the local press, but also in the national press. And I think that's... Uh, I think that's disappeared a little bit. And, uh, you know, especially going into the hive. And I've alluded to it as well in the book that what we had, we had a big catchment base uh, when we were successful under Flashman and Fry that came in from like, well, James, you're from Potts Bar originally, but north of there, you know, Brookman's Park, Wellham Green, up to Welling Garden, Hatfield, all that area used to come in on the train to, to New Barnet and walk up to the ground. And, and it's that lot who just sort of dwindled away. I mean, it's impossible for them to get to the hive. And, uh, you know, you go around Welling Garden now and you see, uh, you know, people walking around in Stevenage shirts. And, uh, you know, that was always sort of Barnet territory back in the day. And we've lost that. I think we've, yeah. I, do, I honestly think we've lost it. Well, there, there's a, a big lack of personality. I remember probably late 90s, around the time we got relegated, that period of time, there was this big, this big debate around um, how you get from being an amateur club or a semi-pro club to a professional club. And there were lots of statements made around Barnet never made the step up to being a professional club. We didn't get the professionalism right, all that kind of stuff. And and what what that seemed to be replaced with was a lot of sort of plasticky type things like bright orange kits uh, and, um, you know, bringing in people from outside to do the stewarding or, or whatever. And it, it lost a bit of personality. It lost a bit of identity. And I think, you know, when you if you if you want to attract a, a casual fan, if you want to attract some of those people that um, that maybe, you know, the, the, the old the fans from previous generations, there has to be something homely about it. There has to be something that people feel attached to. And I think there's very little to attach to. Lee, uh, Lee Harrison said that at Wickham, they, they parade ex-players around the, the pub outside the ground before games um, and get in and, in and amongst the, the fans. And it, and it feels like a bit of. It feels like home, even though when they moved to Adams Park, that was a bit of a well, big deal. There's, there's, the thing is, there's no acknowledgement now of the history of the club. There's, yeah, no engagement at all. And, it, and it's always these kind of gimmicky, oh, £10, one beer and a pint. Or, uh, sorry, £10, one beer and a curry or whatever. For the, it's, it's, yeah, there, there, there seems like a massive lack of in-touch feeling. And it was there at Underhill, and I think it's carried over to where we are there's, now. I, I remember, yeah. the, um, I remember the, the, the cold water in the taps and the toilets being a bit crap were the reason that we couldn't attract more fans at Underhill. It was absolute bollocks, because it had always been like that. The, 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 the lack of personality uh, around the ground, um, from the staff, from everywhere. Kevin Mullen's a great example. He, what, not always the most cheery bloke, but someone that would always stop and say hello and get amongst it. And he felt like a fan working for the club. The minute you start losing that kind of, whether it's the volunteering or whatever, I, I don't know. Look, at, if you look at Salford, um, one of the things um, there's you know mixed views on some of it, but the the, the guys when they came in realised that they couldn't completely lose some of that you know that 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 spirit that was around fans being part of the, the club, and, and I feel like we're encouraged to be exiled now as opposed to being brought back in, and that's a yeah. that's a big change. And I, and I guess there's, I guess there's one individual that's been involved 
all the way throughout and and he's someone who's become very much a polarizing uh figure at the club and that's of course tony clampos the chairman and this is a guy who when i started going in 2000 was almost i suppose revered as almost like a godlike figure you know he, he, he pulled the club out of uh, a difficult time in the mid 90s but over time um his popularity has, has, has waned somewhat and i know dan that in the book you talk about him a little bit as well i wonder if you were maybe uh share a few views on uh, on on his input into the club over the last 25 or so years yeah um well i, I you know what i've tried to get across in the book is that the uh, the referendum that he promised whenever we were going to leave barnet never materialized and you know i think that um i think that it was a, a master plan really from 2005 because once he got that lease for 10,000 when Barnet Council were caught, caught napping in, what, 2004, um, you know, as soon as that 10-year was, was up where he had to split the proceeds with Barnet Council, we'd moved out of the borough, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I, I think that it was, it was a master plan. I think that uh, Barnet Council um, were probably at fault as well, but I think that they would probably have been more receptive to dealing with other people as opposed to him, I think he got their backs up and they, they probably just didn't want to deal with him full stop. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, he's a very good businessman, but I think, you know, when, when you look at Barnet Football Club and the Hive now, they're two separate entities, but one has paid for the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to make comments about Tony Clavis because I don't know him personally and I, so I, I'm not qualified to do that, but I can talk about um, what it's like being a Barnet fan in the era that, that he's been the chairman. I don't think that's unreasonable. And, I, you know, 90% of what's gone on has been has been pretty much spot on. I, I don't think there's many clubs that um, have been as financially sustainable and, and, and stable as we've been during that period of time. You, you only got to look now at, you know, some of the, the northern clubs that are having trouble and other clubs through COVID. And we've been lucky to be a small club that's never under him felt like we're going to go out of business. So I think... There's loads, of, there's loads of good things. And, and there is a lot of value in having a good businessman being in, in charge of the books and, and, and stuff like that. But I, but I do feel like the club has lost some identity, um, whether it be, you know, changing the colour of the kits, um, whether it, you know, moving the, the club from one place to, a, to another that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have its identity, whether it's the introduction of other clubs as part of the franchise that have a different name, um, all, all these types of things that um, that don't engage the football fan. And in my opinion, that's the one thing that's different about football and the entertainment industry, I guess, generally, that you don't get in other um, businesses. The, 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 we're talking about fans and supporters. Um, when, what was it? I can't remember. In music, when they started, you know, with um, what was before Spotify, uh, the, the, the one that got sued massively. Napster. Naps and all that. The, the big the big music businesses realise that if you start disenfranchising the people that are the supporters and the lifeblood and the lovers of what you're putting out, you lose, which is what, you know, moved the, the industry onto Netflixes and Spotify's and stuff like that. Football and, and Barnet has never really caught up with that. And, you know, all the chicken and curry shops and, uh, and you know, memberships for the hive and the gym and all that crap that you want to throw in, you can throw in. But until you actually you know, give the, the supporters the thing they actually love and make them feel part of it, I don't think it'll ever, it'll ever work. And I think that's been a steady move in that direction since since the beginning of, of his time at the club. Yeah, I think also, I mean, 
fans go to watch uh, the product on the pitch. And, um, you know, it's, it's no surprise that when Barnet do well, the fans, you know, the, the attendances go up. And I think that's the same for any club. And I think going back to the decline of Underhill, um, I think they felt stale because of what was on the pitch. And uh, there were some pretty poor players there at the time. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't good watching, you know, watching your side get stuffed week in, week out. And, um, you know, whether that's down to, you know, the poor managers. I mean, you know, that's down to Cleantis. Some of the managers that we had during that era, Mark Robson, Mark Stimson, um, you know, were just just not up to it. You know, they're just not up to it. And I think he has often tried to do things on the cheap, especially when it comes to managers. But the turnover of staff, especially when it comes to managers, I think I, I named them all in one paragraph. I think they were 28 since uh, since 1994. And uh, that's quite a lot. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think, Craig, I think you more or less hit the nail on the head with what you said. I think uh, the point you make about the, the value around having a good businessman in charge of the books, I think, is a good one. And like you say, it's 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 uh, it's it's kept us out of trouble where other clubs have got into quite serious trouble and actually gone out of business. So, you know, from that perspective, yeah, tick the box. But there's obviously been something along the line, certainly in the last five, ten years where the decision-making process has been found wanting. And you know, whether that whether that comes down to investment in the squad, whether that comes down to the manager. I mean, there's, 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 we'll, we'll cover this, I think, uh, on a, a, a later date, but there's certain things that have happened. Like I can think of, think of a few. Graham Wesley being in, being in charge of the team. Things like that really rub people up the wrong way. And that shows a real lack of understanding about what, what the supporters that are left believe. Uh, and I think that that is where the, um, or oh, it's almost like a chasm now between the club and the supporters uh, lies. And that's a very difficult place to be. It's interesting on, on, on something that a few of you have said there about like the, uh, the change over time. And, and I think Dan said about, you know, the 2005 and acquiring that lease and all that was a turning point. Um, and, and we've talked about the number of managers and what you just saw there, James, as well. Um, if you all remember though, because it's easy to forget now, given the the nature of almost what being the Barnet manager is, that it's a short life expectancy. I believe, and I could be totally wrong, Ian Hendon in 2010 was the first sacking he'd ever done. And he was chairman since 94. And it was all the way through. And it, and it was this, this, you know, it's not the Barnet way. I remember him going on late kickoff saying, it's not the Barnet way. It's not all we do. Um, or he sacked him just before the end of the season. Now, generally, Barnet managers were given a huge amount of time, even when that uh, culture was changing, perhaps in the wider football world. And it was like around that time that started changing this kind of instant, right? That's not working. That's not working. That's not working. Don't wrong. Many of them maybe weren't working. Your Stimpsons, your Sanchez's, whoever else who probably needed out. Um, but, you know, wh- wh- when did it change? And, and what, what, you know, so- something along the line did, did change. And it caused that maybe, you know, the, the disconnect we've got now, for a number of reasons, you know, we've got the obvious ones you can point to, but even things like that and the, and the nature of, you know, Dan was saying about the staff turnover, that didn't used to be a thing and not even in, you know, going back to Dan's day as a youngster, going back to the latter part of our days, youngsters, you know, the late 2010. So that's something as well. Um, just to kind of begin to wrap things up here, something that really hit home with me, which maybe I haven't thought about myself so much reading the last bit of the book, was what you alluded to, Dan, about the, aging fan base um 
you know, we've all a, a number of us have kind of voted with our feet a little bit on the hive and, and not gone so much. Um, and it's something that I hadn't really considered so much is the fact that, yeah, you know, you've got the old school will eventually become the, the no longer school uh, and then will become the old school and, and, you know, whatever else. And, and is there that continuation on? I mean, it, like you said, the end of the book gets quite serious after quite a jolly and funny start. Dan, what do you see the future for Barnet Football Club? And is it as bleak as what I'm thinking in my mind now? Yeah, I do. Unless we go back to Barnet, but uh, there's no one even attempting to get us back to Barnet. That's the problem. Uh, the aging fan base came from uh, there's a there's a lady who supported Barnet for years. She's been Barnet fan for since she was a little kid, actually. A lady called Vanessa Hooper, and she brought it up, and it made me think about it. And it was after Boreham Wood last year. We went to Boreham Wood away. It was absolutely dire nil-nil draw and Barnet fans sang one song all afternoon in a local derby. Borenwood didn't sing anything at all and we still had like probably had about 800 over there but we only sang one song and that is that is a sign of an ageing fan base you know that don't sing or you know don't sort of really sort of make much atmosphere and um, yeah I think I think that's an issue but um yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is worrying. And I, I think unless we do go back to Barnet, um, that we, um, you know, I don't think there is, is a future really for Barnet Football Club. And I don't think we will go back to Barnet as long as Tony Cleanthus is, is in charge because the Hive, you know, if you look at the accounts last year, uh, made £1.5 million in profit. Barnet FC, I don't know whether every expense going through is, is going through Barnet FC, but... Uh, we we lost four hundred thousand pounds. I think it was five hundred and seventy-five thousand if you include London Bees and the Academy. Um, but we actually lost four hundred thousand pounds, and that is in a year where we had an FA Cup run, uh, where we beat Sheffield United, which that was worth I think one hundred and thirty-five grand us getting to the fourth round, just in, in prize money alone. The Brentford game was televised live, which I think was worth two hundred and fifty grand. And, um, you know, whatever gate receipts you made out of it on the way and the red button stuff on a Sunday lunchtime. So it shows either, you know, there's some creative accounting going on there or Barnet FC are hemorrhaging a serious amount of money. And, you know, if the high is making 1.5 million and Barnet FC's losing £400,000 a year, um, you know, let, let's, see, let's see sort of how long Barnet lasts in that sort of scenario it's bleak and uh, and but i think you know you make a lot of good points there and, and i certainly feel the same it's something that it's not been widely discussed and it's not something that i thought we'd come up with tonight but i think it's something worth considering um if the club continues in, in the vein they're going in let's say in general at the hive in terms of attendances apathy from well i say older fans we're in our 30s us three and we're, we're certainly in that bracket do you think there'd ever be an appetite for some sort of breakaway Phoenix, whatever you want to call it, club within the borough? And as an older supporter who maybe has a better perspective than people like myself, what do you think the appetite for that would possibly be if there was still a Barnet FC playing at the Hive in Harrow? Yeah, I, th I think it is, a, it is a possibility. There's already a number of Barnet fans who go and watch Adley, uh, who play up in Arkley. And uh, a number of people who I know... Uh, sort of pop in there, you can have a pint, watch the game, and uh, it's quite a quite a friendly atmosphere. I think the danger with that, though, is you split the fan base even further. 
And what you find, you know, we saw it with Enfield. When Enfield left Southbury Road, you had the original Enfield, which was Enfield 
who said they won't set foot in the hive and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, they thanked me for actually sort of writing it and actually sort of uh, approaching the subject. So uh, I think that community is still there, but it's just, uh, you know, sort of in the background. And, uh, you know, you don't see it. You don't see any protests. You don't see any sort of forceful nature about it. And you don't see, sadly, you don't see anyone trying to get us back to EM5. Yeah, I think I think it would take something quite significant for that to happen. And what that is, I don't know. All right, then. Well, look, Dan, thanks very much for your time this evening. Look, anyone who's listening, if you haven't already bought the Barnet Affair book, it is the perfect uh, Christmas stocking filler. Uh, fantastic way to look back on the club in the happier times. And uh, cheers, Dan, tonight for joining us for a look over all the times and uh, good luck on all the future endeavours into these venues. Thank you, but never mind a stocking filler. It should be your wife's main Christmas present, mate. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Take Robinson on. He's oh, and there's goal of the season, Frank Murphy. Giuliano Grazioli. Oh, absolute quality. I'm sure most people would say I was mad. Oh, Brian, second, please. Lovely stuff from Curry, not a bad try.